Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with my monthly magazine show for your ears. And here is what we have coming up for you today. The, the most likely scenario would have been that that crop would have pulled me off the boat mm. and then taken me to shore to eat me or stash me under a ledge because that's what they do. One listener's incredible will to live in the face of certain death. How to survive a crocodile attack. Plus... Mr. Clanman, bring me a dream. Bum, 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 bum. Make it so juicy that my pants will cream. Alex Fox on why wet dreams aren't just for boys. And Ollie Peart pimps up the takeaway. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters and hello to Caitlin, a PhD researcher in Sydney working on honeybees. Uh, she says, Ollie, I just wanted to send you an important fun fact that Ollie Peart missed out last month whilst discussing bee insemination. Uh, when we make bees ejaculate, their back end basically explodes and then they die. Cheers. Um, <laughs> thank you, Caitlin. What a fun fact. Uh, and hello too to Neil Hawke, who says, Ollie, I'm a big man fan. First through Answer Me This, now through The Modern Man, which I got into in 2019 and has since become a staple in my ears. Ear stapling sounds like a future zeitgeist challenge, I feel. Uh, like so many people last year, says Neil, I lost my job in 2020 and I had nine months at home as the main carer for my now three-and-a-half-year-old son. My wife was a midwife, so was frontline during the pandemic. It was a hard year, but you helped us get through. Thanks. Uh, I am now listening to you overnight, thanks to baby number two arriving a few weeks back. So, could you please tell me, Ollie, when is the next instalment of How to Be a Dad? Well, funny you should ask, Neil. Congratulations on the baby, by the way. It does get easier. Uh, well, it, you know, it gets harder, then it gets easier, then it gets a bit harder again. You'll remember from the first one. Um, but uh, I am pleased to tell you that the next edition of uh, How to Be a Dad... Uh, my ongoing uh, note-comparing sessions on fatherhood with Tom Price and Stuart Goldsmith will be in our June edition next month. Uh, it will be the sixth year running that we've done an episode of that. So uh, take that, Josh Widdicombe. We've been doing this for six years. Uh, if you haven't heard our How to Be a Dad episodes yet, uh, you can hear them all on one handy page at modernman.co.uk slash dads. As last year, what we would like is to answer some parenthood questions for you guys. So if you have a question of parenthood you would like to put to me and Tom and Stu, send it in now via the feedback page on our website as well. Uh, right, now just before we get on with this month's episode, I feel obliged to tell you about a new show that I've been working on with producer Matt, which is available right now. It is called The Retrospectors, and it is a daily podcast. It is an on-this-day-in-history type format. So on the day you download the show, uh, you get a fact from history that happened to have occurred on that day. But, I mean, really, you can listen at any time. And it's me and Aaron McNichol and Rebecca Messina talking about those curious footnotes from history, the things you never knew and the things you never knew you never knew. Um, already uh, on the show, we've uh, done episodes on the theft of Edvard Munch's iconic painting, The Scream. We've talked about the day Eva Gabor went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and effectively launched Twister, the party game Twister, into the swinging 60s. We've talked about Mary Whitehouse's smut campaign, or, well, anti-smut campaign, <laughs> I suppose I should say. Uh, it is a show about history, but it is very much an entertainment show about history. It's all about the fun facts. So Caitlin, with her B-seaman facts, she'd love it. Uh, and broadly speaking, I would like to think, if you enjoy this show, you would love it too. It's only 10 minutes a day, so try us out. 10 minutes a day. Fit us into your routine. See how you go. The Retrospectors. You can listen to it now. Just use the very app that you're listening to this on right now to search for The Retrospectors and press follow or 
subscribe or whatever button they're giving you these days. The Retrospectors. I'll put a link in our show notes as well. Uh, and I'd love to know what you think. Uh, right, on this month's edition of this show, uh, you'll learn what a teenage mutant ninja squirtle is. You'll learn why poking a crocodile in the eyes isn't a good idea. And you'll learn how you can cook cocoa-seared anglais with braised cabbage and miso caramel butter. Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested with Ollie Peart and for no particular reason other than the fact that she is here in my kitchen at the same time, so why not? Alex Fox as well. I just love muscling in. You sound weird. Yeah, that's temporary. Okay. Um, I don't know quite what happened. I don't smoke, honest. I just don't know. You sound quite good, actually. Uh, last episode, you were issued a challenge by man fan Christian in Birmingham uh, who said, Ollie, please can you investigate and wet my appetite with... Post-pandemic dining trends. So when we are going back to restaurants, Mm. what are we going to find? Well, to find out, I actually went to a restaurant in Dorset near me just to find out, you know, what's going on. And I went to a restaurant called the Guildhall Tavern. It's like classic French. They've been there for like 20 years. Very well established. So the first first thing they did when when they realised that they could sort of semi-open is they bought one of those tents. So they've got this outdoor area. And they're very, very good now at serving food outdoors, but still keeping you warm. So they've got the blankets, they've got the patio heaters. So that is going to stay, I think. But they also made a really big point about their sustainability. For a long time, people have been looking at food miles, haven't they? And, Mm. you know, eating local and all that stuff. Yeah, and they found a fisherman, a single fisherman who's on on the... He's just about to retire, and he's basically their only supplier of fish. Wow, that sounds like a risky strategy, they say. But for their customers as well, they know where their food's coming from. They know exactly not only where it's from, but the bloke... Who Boom. supplied it? This shrimp cocktail's rank. Yeah. I want my money back. But it's nice, isn't it? And I think people will want that when they go out to restaurants. They'll want to know exactly where their foods come from. What else did you deduce from this trip down the road from your house from which you hope to extrapolate national trends? They are expanding. So lots of, like, 10,000 restaurants and pubs closed during the pandemic, right? Yeah, I was going to say, that the trend surely, unfortunately, is more redundancies and closures, not expansions. Well, yeah, in the short term. But those restaurants that have managed to make a success of it through things like food boxes are actually seeing this as a brilliant opportunity to expand there's loads of empty units there's loads of brilliantly qualified staff in hospitality and chefs and whatnot who don't have a job it's the perfect opportunity so what they've done is they've just 200 yards from this restaurant they've created a spin-off restaurant and i think you'll start to see more of that with independents that have done well you'll start to see them expanding quite interesting wouldn't it if you get people who also started businesses doing deliveries from their home kitchens Mm. now being the people that take over the restaurants that they effectively put out of business like they'll want to expand into the premises that have just been left by the established players and actually those independents that started doing deliveries and had their like small kitchens their small you know restaurant kitchens whatever they're doing it from they they became so successful during lockdown that actually companies like delivery invited them to use bigger kitchens in in warehouses like you know off-site warehouses where they could kind of cook up more of the same food that they normally would do in their smaller kitchens but they'll be able to do it at volume because more people are ordering through delivery it's funny that isn't it i don't know how i feel about it like on the one hand when you actually go to a real takeaway it's quite irritating when you're there to collect your food and there's 20 motorcycle drivers also queuing to get in (laughs) yeah um so it makes sense to have a separate venue for that Mm. but on the other hand like as a customer you're buying this this branded experience of remember what it was like when you used to come into our restaurant well we're delivering that to your house now but if it comes from a warehouse it's it's not is it it's like the microwave meal version it's the sort of Oaxaca meal kit version of it 
Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, it's like I was saying before with that fisherman, you know, I, people want to know where their food's coming from. They want to know that, like, if you like that independent restaurant, if you've been there before, especially, you want to know it's the same chef. Mm. You want to know it's the owner that's there. And you kind of have a sense of where it's being made. I read a really scathing article that said how companies like Deliveroo and uh, Uber Eats are setting up these dark kitchens where because they have so much access to data about what people are ordering, what kind of cuisine they're into and where the gaps in the market are they're setting up these kitchens in industrial estates as kind of like fake takeaways branding them up as though they're legitimate family businesses or yeah. independence uh, and then undercutting the very people who they would usually serve i do wonder as well whether post-pandemic people will still be ordering so bafflingly little from some of these places like i went into a cafe nero the other day and i had to wait in a queue even though there was no one there because the woman who was making the coffee was prioritising people that had ordered through an app that were coming to pick it up. And someone had spent, I think she told me it was £11 to get like a large barista-made coffee and a cookie delivered to their flat. So if you can afford £11 for one coffee, buy a coffee machine. I find that absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, that is a little bit weird. They're sort of just, you know, craving that high street experience, but in their home so much so they'll spend 11 quid on it. But yeah. I think that will go. They'll stop doing that. So what are people going to be eating then? What are the trends we're going to be enjoying? In short, comfort food that's high end. And I happen to have some here, Ollie man. And I'm going to cook it for you. That's why we're in my kitchen. Yes! Let me read the instructions. Preheat your oven to 200 degrees. Ollie, you've got 50 million knobs on this oven. Which one is it? It's not an Argo, it's a Range Master. I was using the brand name generically. Yes, well. Do you want the small one or the big one? Small is fine, I think. I've got some sandwiches, by the way, if this is right. (laughs) So you join us one hour later amidst a massive carb crash. Ollie, tell us what we just ate. Homemade sweet potato and spinach gnocchi. Not homemade by you, though. No. Homemade by a high-end Italian restaurant called Gnocchi. Not spelt correctly. Well, spelt spelt in a way they can copyright. Absolutely. Okay, so what's the trend there? Well, it's been put together by a nutritionist, number one. So you know that what you're getting is kind of healthy. Sweet potato, spinach, that kind of stuff. And people are more health conscious about the stuff that they eat. So for people that are listening, thinking, well, the Italian nonnas didn't need a nutritionist to make tasty food. It's not actually about flavour. It's about making sure you get a good flavour, but also as much nutrition as possible remains in the food. Because obviously you boil gnocchi, don't you? And I guess a lot of that nutritional stuff from the vegetables can disappear. Yeah, it's wholesome. You know that what you're eating is good. It's not necessarily healthy, but it hasn't been reduced down or processed in a way that all of that has just been removed. Okay, so (laughs) that came in a packet that you just cooked in my house. Mm. So what's that? I mean, that's. do you think that's a trend that's here to stay as well? So these kind of food boxes we've seen from posh restaurants? Yeah, I don't think that's going to die. I, th- I think it's nice, isn't it, to be able to have really good quality food that you can cook at home really simply. That's like most of it's done for you. You know, it's been put together by a chef. It's been put together by a nutritionist. You no, have to worry. is my answer. Oh, really? No. Yeah, I'd rather just cook cheaply at home. I find it really weird that people are spending 60 quid on a meal at home. Well, loads of people are already doing HelloFresh boxes, and I tried one of the elevated versions of that called uh, Your Fork that um, allows you to prepare a five-course, really like ho-cuisine kind Mm. of meal at home. That's why I want someone to serve me when I'm out. I don't put all that effort into five courses. Honestly, the sense of achievement (laughs) that I got at successfully cooking 
cocoa-seared anglais with braised cabbage and miso caramel butter. I felt like a queen. Lots of people have thrown dinner parties where they've had some surreptitious help. And I think now that more people have been introduced to that during the pandemic, lots of folks will want to cook impressive meals for their friends when they're finally able to welcome them into their homes. Uh, And ordering a box that perhaps facilitates that, I can see the appeal of that. It's Mrs Doubtfire. You know that scene in Mrs Doubtfire? He has to cook for the kids after he sets fire to his tits. He gets a nice, sophisticated meal box that sets him back hundreds of dollars and puts a lovely meal on the table that's restaurant quality. That's what it is. All right, so tell me through the other thing that we just ate. I mean, I can see it was salmon. Yes, it was. It was salmon fillet with grapefruit miso. It's been produced by uh, a restaurant called Incognito. They've got a restaurant in London they've got one in L.A., and rather than open another restaurant, they thought, well, let's do some food boxes. And they have, and they've been really successful. So where did you get that from? So this is from a supermarket called the Supermarket of Dreams. That's what it's called? That is what it's called. It's not a factory outlet for Dreams Beds. It's not. It's not. And they've been really smart during uh, COVID because they've worked with these chefs and these restaurants to bring these and put them on the shelf. So rather than going to the restaurant's website you can go along to the supermarket and you can get it off the shelf they also sell stuff from Ottolenghi and uh, the uh, pastry chef from the Lebri is doing donuts there which are under the brand name Lux I think they've called them Lux but it, the point is it's high-end comfort food mm. so these high-end chefs delivering comfort food you can get in a supermarket yeah I've been seeing quite a lot of that so around here in St Albans there's a posh fish restaurant which I like called Lussman's I think they've got about five branches in Hertfordshire and they now have a burger stall in the park. I just wonder if that is going to be something that we're going to see more of because although they're obviously selling and they can make a good burger, I wonder if it undermines their business. Like, do you still want to go and pay twice as much for fish and will it seem as like a moment from the pandemic that people won't want to keep doing afterwards? Gordon Ramsay's got plans to open 50 restaurants in the next year that focus on pizza and burgers. So it's his name, his high-end restaurant name attached to burgers and pizza. But he was in that game pre-pandemic, wasn't he? He's got restaurants in Dubai and at airports and stuff like that. Yeah, but 50. Las Vegas. 50 in a year. It's big. It's a lot. Mm. You might say that just as the distinction between the office and the home has blurred more during the pandemic, it seems like the distinction between our home kitchens and posh restaurant kitchens Mm. are blurring here. You're going out for comfort food. You're staying in for your posh food. Yeah, that's true. And what about drinks? What are we going to be drinking? I have some predictions here. Mm -hmm. I think, firstly, more hot cocktails, like hot toddies and mulled wine that we traditionally drink around Christmas time. I think as people continue to drink outside in dodgy British weather, I think immediately there'll be more of of an interest in those. But also, I've been experimenting with various alcohol-free options lately, and I've noticed... Um, a movement towards trying to include botanicals and and other infusions that actually have an influence on your mood in the same way that alcohol would. So you've got drinks emerging like Three Spirit that are brewed to either try and help you be more sociable and and pep you up and other ones that are supposed to behave like a a nightcap um, or a sundowner and actually calm you down and chill you out before bedtime. I wonder whether that trend will continue into food um, I'm good friends with um, Bompus and Parr, the kind of experimental foodie duo who are most famous for their jellies. These are the guys that supposedly made the New Year's fireworks smell like food. 
Yeah, yeah. They, they've done breathable gin and tonics, uh, all so sorts of crazy release. stuff. I was bitterly disappointed when I put my head up into the air at midnight <laughs> and wanted to smell a panettone. just didn't happen. But anyway. just, just smelled of smoke. Well, they sent me a drink, like a, a milky drink that was infused with various types of cheese that was designed to give oh, you really vivid dreams. But if you look at some of the Nightmares. other trends, like, <laughs> like micro-dosing and uh, interest in, in psychedelics and more people paying attention to getting good sleep that's something throughout the last year that a lot of people have been talking about Mm. i wonder if we'll see more food and drink designed to enhance and support things like our sleep cycles or our our outlooks i agree but i think that comfort food is mood food isn't it that's Mm. we all basically want a food version of prozac at the moment because the last year's been so shitty that's why we're going to gorge on pasta and pizza On which uh, I think we should reveal your challenge for next month's episode. Are you ready to hear it? Yes! It's from Chris in Manchester who went to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and clicked on feedback. And he says, I am a pilot by trade. It's not been a great industry to be in recently. I was made redundant from Thomas Cook in 2019 and furloughed from my new airline. I've been working delivering cars and vans this year, so spend long hours on the road and have been re-listening to your back catalogue. Thank you for the show. You're welcome. I have been doing some training simulator sessions at a sim in Manchester. Having listened to Ollie's futile attempts to run Flight Simulator in your March edition, Mm. I would like to invite Ollie to have a go on a real flight simulator if he is interested. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love that. That's amazing. So you get the proper one that like kind of moves and an actual flight simulator that pilots use to learn how to fly a plane. I'm going to press the button that makes all the slides go out the door. Didn't you have a childhood dream of being a pilot? I did. Yeah, I even took the aptitude test to become a commercial airline pilot, and I passed. Got into a school, and then the financial crash happened, and then all of a sudden I couldn't get the funding to do it. Hang on, where do I have to fly to and from? Well, it's a simulator, Ollie. I mean, you're in Manchester the whole time. I mean, it's. You're pretending, aren't you? I'm going to fly it from Bournemouth to Southampton. <laughs> Thrilling. <laughs> the, most, the most glamorous of routes. <laughs> Go anywhere in the world. Where would you like to fly? Well, it's sure. Manchester's a long way. Yeah, sure. It? Yeah. It's and sweet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Chris, thank you for being in touch. Yes, Ollie will take you up on that offer and he will be in touch to sort it out. Yes. I'm really excited about that. I know. It's the dream, isn't it? Going it is. to Manchester and pretending to be in Southampton. <laughs> um... <laughs> Before we finish with the zeitgeist, we must thank our sponsors for this section, manscaped.com. The best in men's below-the-waist grooming. You know all about the lawnmower 3.0 already, the ball trimmer with an LED light, which is brilliant. It Leaves really is your good. bollocks as fresh as the day is long. Exactly. But they also do an excellent cologne, which is called Refined, and is good-looking and so refined, and is in this square 50 mil. Container in front of me. Alex, you've never smelt a manscaped cologne before. You can I, be our guinea pig. I haven't. Am I going to spray this on me or you? You spray it on me. It's, okay. a, it's a male scent. Oh, it, smells, it smells nicely green and cedary. It is, isn't it? It's woodsy. It's masculine. It's hypoallergenic. It's cruelty-free, DVE-free, paraben-free, and 100% vegan. And I am still sniffing your arm. Is yeah, that good? It's, well, I, you know, I Ooh. think anyone would be happy with that. The refined cologne is one of many things you can find at manscaped.com. They've also got the ball deodorant and the toner, which I have used on a regular basis. I can tell just by looking at you wearing ball toner today. It's You've just nice. got that kind of... 
expression. Fresh face. Uh, you can get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code MAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MAN at manscaped.com. Look good, smell good, feel good with Manscaped. That is genuinely nice as well. There you go. Not, uh, Alex, we will return at. to you later. Uh, but first, it is time for our record of the month. It's this by Billy Martin. It's called Creature of Mine. And Billy is on tour in September. It feels nice to say those words again. Oh, Mother Nature says it's all getting worse. We love hearing your stories on this show because we haven't heard them before and we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Those are the stories we love to bring you. And also they're from all over the world. We have listeners everywhere, as our Ambassador Map will attest. Rob and SJ are our ambassadors for Zimbabwe. They were appointed back in 2016. And ever since, they've continued to fly the flag for the show and spread the good word, including to their best friends, Rosie and her wife, Sarah. Now, let me give you a bit of background info on Rosie. She lives in Zimbabwe as well. In late 2002, she was diagnosed with a brain tumour, which she fully recovered from, thankfully, with brain surgery. But she did experience depression as a result, and she dealt with that partly by, at the age of 43 taking up ultra running. So Rosie is one of those, frankly, unfathomable people who loves a punishing 15-hour marathon, that sort of thing. And she credits ultra running with giving her a lot of strength. And it is that strength which I think is pretty crucial to the story she's about to tell us. It starts in 2017 in the Christmas holidays in Matobo National Park. So my wife Sarah and I decided to head down to Matobo National Park, which we very often do for Christmas. We love to hike. We just hike all day, do a bit of canoeing. Almost the exact polar opposite to the Dickensian London Christmas then, basically. Totally. <laughs> and then later, our very good friends, John and Dorothy, joined us as they often did. In fact, every time we did this trip, they would come and spend New Year with us. They were like second parents to us, really. The lovely people. And on the 30th of December, you decided to go canoeing on a dam. We did. So we, we got the canoe in the water and John and I got in and we were just going to paddle out for a nice little late afternoon. Sort of... It's a chilled out mid-afternoon paddle, right? That's what Absolutely. you went out to embark on. Totally. We paddled out into the middle of the dam, it's a big dam, having a lovely time. We were admiring the beautiful light because it was like golden light. The afternoon light in Zimbabwe can be so amazing on the rocks. And your side mm. of the dams are just beautiful granite. It's beautiful scenery. So you're just having a super time. And there was this sudden massive impact on the canoe out of absolutely nowhere. 
the whole canoe just spun around. My first thought was hippo, because hippos are known to attack canoes. Uh, but, but there was no warning, there was nothing, we didn't see anything in the water, we were just paddling, and we lost our paddles, because you know, we did the startle response. So they just went straight over the side? Straight over the side. And then, to my absolute horror, it's a moment I'll never, ever forget, I saw this crocodile bite into the side of the canoe. It was that surreal moment where I looked at that and thought, I'm going to die now. Because we are like half a kilometre out on the water. There's no other boats around, there's no people around, there's only Sarah half a k away on the shore. And what had your experience taught you to do when you encounter a crocodile? What's the survival manual? You see, there isn't one because people don't survive. (laughs) The one thing that flashed into my head was this, I don't know where I got it, was this idea that, oh, poke your fingers in its eyes. I mean, that might have come from, I think people do that with sharks, don't they? Which did absolutely nothing. It was a really big crocodile. I mean, the terror of thinking that this thing is about to eat you and then having the fortitude to poke it in the face, I can't quite imagine... The act of doing it. You know, I find, uh, you know, killing a mouse with a broomstick quite traumatic. But just actually touching an animal's eyeballs is difficult, right? Absolutely. There was that moment of realisation when we both thought, we're going to die now. He saw that croc. It was it was closer to me than him. It was just staring me in the eye. And he said, he, he, he was a humorous guy. And even in this moment, he sort of said in an almost humorous way, well... I don't think we're going to get through this one. So I'm just going to pray. Because he was, he was a very religious man. So he started praying. And he, he, he was saying, thank you, dear Lord, for the wonderful life I have lived. And, and I have enjoyed every moment. And thank you. That kind of thing. Which was... I mean, after... It's not the soundtrack you want to hear, is it? No. Not at all. So, and he just... I mean, I can't tell you the rest of the prayer because... For me, some kind of massive survival instinct was kicking in. The last thing I thought of was praying. I actually said out loud, I'm not ready to die. I've got too much left to do. And then I, that's when I started poking its eyes. I even tried to prise open its jaws with my hands, which is, is wow. going to be physically impossible. I mean, but I thought, you know what, I was... But did you worry that the crocodile was going to attack you? I mean, at this point, the boat is in its mouth, right? I mean... D- But I knew it would attack me. I knew knew that would be the next move. But is there not an option to, I don't know, uh, call for help, which takes an hour to arrive, but just keep distracting the crocodile, hope that he stays distracted by the boat? Was that the thought? I didn't have that thought at all because the truck started attacking me almost. As soon as I did the poke in the eye thing and the prize open the jaw thing, it just started attacking me. It, it It was horrifying. It was so surreal because... You, never it, that is one of your worst nightmares uh, you know mm. people who are living by the sea it's probably getting a, eaten by a shark right in Zimbabwe it would be getting attacked by a crocodile or a lion or getting charged to death by an elephant or something I mean it's the kind of worst most horrible case scenario you can think of and it it was attacking me within probably seconds because this all happened so fast I mean there's this suspended moment where you think 
I'm about to die. Then there's this survival instinct kicking in saying, what can I do to survive? And then you've got one side of your brain saying you can't and the other side saying I'm bloody well going to try. So that was the prize open the jaws, poke out the eyes, whatever. And then it just started leaping out the water and biting me. It took my left hand first, crushed it. I heard the bones crack, you know, it was just so surreal. And then it then it got my chest. Was there a part of you at that point that's almost watching it as a spectator? Because you can't believe, you can't process this is happening to you. It's funny because, I mean, I do know what that is like, that sort of dissociated, in trauma, you can, it's almost like you're watching someone else. But with this, mm. I was totally in the moment because I, my brain was trying to compute how to survive. I, it's, it was trying really hard and I was completely in that moment. And I felt absolutely no pain. I mean, because these, these horrible injuries were being inflicted. It ripped open my chest. I could see my own tissue falling out into the water. And I remember looking at it in absolute horror and, and thinking how gross that was. And then I kept thinking, but I'm still alive. I've got to keep trying. So the crocodile bit into your chest and your breast tissue fell into the totally. water. Totally. The next thing I remember is that I was over the boat with the whole of my right arm down the crocodile's throat, but I was still over the boat. And I have no idea how I stayed on that boat because the, the most likely scenario would have been that that croc would have pulled me off the boat, drowned me, mm. and then taken me to shore to eat me or stash me under a ledge because that's what they do. They'll stash their, their booty under a ledge on the riverbank and then go and feast you know, at, at their at their pleasure. So the bottom half of your body is on the boat. Yeah. Half of the top half of your body is missing and yeah. half of the other half of it is in the crocodile's throat. How long is this crocodile? I reckon it was two and a half to three metres long. Because, I mean, I you know, I, I, was with, I was intimately connected with this animal for a whole hour, actually. I was looking into its eyes. I was watching its tail moving through the water and about two and a half to three meters long so it's quite large i mean that you can get larger ones than that but it's large enough to eat me that's for sure i think the blank is when it swallowed my arm because i think probably maybe that's just too traumatic to remember i don't know but i i do not remember that happening and i do not remember ending up lying over the boat pulling through the water with my left arm which was already smashed with a crushed hand with my other arm down the crocodile's throat, but somehow still staying on the boat. John is still staying on the boat. He's pulling through the water with his right arm and the crocodile just starts swimming with us. So, so this croc is actually helping us get to shore. I'm quite sure with the intention of drowning me to eat me because after all, it's got my arm. I, I had screamed to Sarah, crocodile attack, crocodile attack, get help, get help. And she did hear, and she got in the car, which shows an incredible strength of character and presence of mind. Imagine that. What, to abandon you? To, you to drive away knowing that she's probably going to come back to nothing. Uh, but she did it anyway because it was the only thing she could do. I kept talking to the crocodile because, I, I mean, its eyes were like six inches from mine. And I was just staring into these dark eyes of this predator who was going to eat me. 
and I was saying, please don't eat me, please let me live. Please don't eat me, please let me live. And I did it with every stroke of my arm that I pulled through the water. It was like a mantra, you know, it was like, I think it might've been empowering actually. My will to live was so strong. I really, really was not ready to die. Did the crocodile move much during this process then? Like he's clamped down now on he's you. Clamped down he's clamped down and the clamping, the, the grip on my right arm got tighter and tighter. Could you feel him swallowing parts of you? I could, I could feel, I could feel with my fingers, I could feel the inside of the throat, the tongue, I could feel that stuff. And it, and it was getting tighter and tighter. And I could see all the scales down the, the tail. I mean, nobody gets that close to a crocodile normally and gets to study their anatomy that close, you know. And it, it, it was like suspended animation or something. It just, it was so surreal. So John's praying to God. Yeah. You're kind of praying to the crocodile. It's an interesting test, isn't it? Like, you know, that moment where you genuinely think you're going to die, what do you do? Do you know something? Praying was just the last thing on my mind. It, to me, no, nothing matters except strategy. How to live. The talking to the crocodile, I don't know, I think that mantra just somehow kept me pulling and kept me going. You know, please don't eat me, please let me live. Please don't eat me, please let me live. Please don't eat me, please let me live. got pretty close to shore and then I heard gunfire and I remember this unbelievable surge of relief because I thought maybe I'm gonna make it there's they're here and then the crocodile pulled me off the boat and started drowning me I remember going under and it happened so fast and it was like so it was so unexpected it was a terrible shock because there was that moment of hope and then I was underwater and, be, and I was beginning to inhale water and I, I could hear this gunfire from the shore. You know, even underwater I could hear it. And then there was this moment when I was free. Suddenly I was free. The crocodile spat me out. So there I am in the water. There's about 15 meters between me and the shore and the guys with the guns. They were shooting in the air. Quite rightly, because how could they shoot at the crocodile? They'd shoot me. They could shoot John, you know? So they did the right thing. I mean, I, I, I hadn't even thought that through. I, thought, I hadn't really thought to myself, how will they do it? What will they do? But they had, that's all they could think to do, shoot in the air. And, and maybe that'll scare it. And it had worked. I then had to swim with these mangled arms. And there were bones sticking out. But it was still connected to your body but it was still connected to my body even the hand that the <laughs> croc had initially clamped even down on. the hand i mean there was it you know it it was do you know what i didn't even think about it because all i could think about was getting to shore before one of these crocs got me again and by the way there's not really an option is there for someone to come in the water to rescue you there's no other option but for you to swim over that's totally it. I mean, the guys were there. They'd got a, a, a branch off a tree, you know, a, a, quite a thick stick. And they were holding it out over the water because they weren't getting in that water. Yeah. I mean, it's full of crocodiles, right? <laughs> so, 
so I had to somehow get myself these 15 meters, which is quite far, through the water with these mangled arms and hands. And did you think at that point you were going to make it? I did. I actually thought I can make this as long as these crocs don't grab me by the legs or whatever. I'm going to make it. And I just put somehow I did it with these completely mangled arms. I I made it. I got to that stick. It sounds like how you train yourself for the ultra run. I think my ultra running had a big part to play, actually. Just that experience of pushing through the most impossible things and thinking, no, I can do this. It's the same technique, isn't it? I'm in this impossible situation, but I'm going to do this. Exactly. And I'm going to finish. I'm going to get there. Do you think you were consciously employing that technique? I don't think consciously. I think it's more with all the ultra running I've done that it becomes part of you that that you start thinking nothing's impossible. No, I can get through this. And if something hurts, no, I can get through that. I can get through pain. It's just pain. So, so it's just it was just a question of getting to that stick without getting eaten on the way and I have to tell you that was probably the most terrifying part of the whole apart from when I saw the croc and thought I'm about to die that swim was the most terrifying part of it because I was completely conscious of of the danger I was in the shock factor had gone because the trauma had happened it was more knowing that that those 15 meters I could still lose my life very easily so I just had to get to that stick as fast as I could. And I actually grasped the stick with a totally crushed hand and a totally broken arm. I mean, smashed, broken, crushed. But it, what you do what you have to do. You just do it. And then they just pulled me in and they picked me up and they laid me down. And I lay down on that grass and I thought, I'm going to live. Still to come, Rosie recalls recovering from her injuries, returning to ultra running, and what happened to John. Her incredible story continues after this. This episode of The Modern Man is brought to you by Beer 52, which I'm delighted to tell you about because, well, frankly, it's a very easy promotion to sell you because it involves free beer. And not just beer, but the best craft beer from all over the world, from the world's largest beer club with 170,000 active members. Each month, you can get a case delivered to your door, bursting with beers and a magazine and a snack. This month for me has been all about Five Point Brewery's Railway Porter. Yum. But, you know, if you don't like dark beers, no problem. Just choose the light option. If you want to skip a case or pause your subscription, no worries there either. Just let them know. There is no drawback here. Try it yourself, man fans, with a free case of eight craft beers from Beer 52. All you need to do is visit beer52.com slash modern and cover just the postage costs of £5.95, and you can cancel at any time. But you won't want to. That's beer52.com slash modern. Cheers. Right, let's return to Matobo National Park now and my conversation with Rosie. While she and John had been facing off with the crocodile, her partner Sarah had been busy seeking help. She'd not only got those guys there just in time to save my life, she'd also 
gone to find cell phone signal because we're in the middle of the bush, we're in the, a national park, there's no cell phone signal. And I mean, she knew there's going to be some very injured people. And mm. she'd managed to, she didn't have her cell phone because she'd rushed to get help. She couldn't find it. It was lying, lying in the picnic site, you know. So she'd grabbed a guy with a cell phone, said, come with me, get in the car, get in the car, driven off to find cell signal, phoned our health insurers. We happened to have the most fantastic health insurance via her company, thank goodness. And they just kicked into mode because they, I mean, they got ambulances on the way. They, you know, so there were ambulances coming from Bulawayo you know, before we'd even got to the main road. And I mean, she was such a, a heroine, honestly. She was absolutely incredible. She kept her head. She had to draw a map for the National Parks guys to find where we were by that dam in the sand, literally in the sand. This is where you go. Go now, now, get in the car. Because she also had to go with them to find their guns. But you didn't know any of this at the time. No. So you're lying on the grass. Yeah. Who's looking after you? Well, um, Sarah's mother's nurse... Who, who, nurse aide, I mean, she, you know, halfway to a nurse type of nurse. Um, mm-hmm. she, she came and she was binding these wounds. And actually, that's the first moment I felt any pain. Once I was on the, on terra firma, that's when I felt the pain because my brain just blocked it out for as long as I, it was a near death experience that I was trying to survive. The minute I felt safe, in came the pain. Oh, my goodness, pain like, I could never have imagined. And I was screaming because she was binding the wounds tightly because there was blood everywhere, which I also didn't really know. I think I was barely conscious by then, but I thought, you know, first I had all this relief about I'm alive. I'm gonna run those races, I'm alive. And the second thought was, where's John? How's he doing? Because I thought John would live as well, I did. I I fully thought we've got through this terrible trauma. It shouldn't have been possible, but we did it. And he was still alive when we got to those rocks and he was speaking to me. He was very frail and his heart was not strong. And the shock, I I don't know whether it it triggered a heart attack or what happened, but he died. Um, And we're not sure at exactly what point he died, whether it was on our way to the ambulance, whether even before, because when we got to the ambulances, which we we met on the on the road because also some other people came to help because Sarah had also into the bargain of getting people there to save my life going to get cell phone signal getting ambulances coming on their way she'd also stopped a passing car and sent them to one of the safari lodges nearby and said go and get help tell them to go to this dam quick 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 somebody's dying you know so these people also came from this lodge they we actually knew them and they were able to find us a shortcut out of where we were to the main road that they knew because they lived there they, and they just know every little nook and cranny of the place. So they and they, they helped clean up all our picnic and bring everything to the national park. They really helped us a lot. Do you remember being in the back of the ambulance? Uh, I sure do. I sure do. In fact, I remember being put into a car to go to the ambulance and just screaming and screaming because the pain was just indescribable. And I was so thirsty. I just wanted water, water, water. And... I remember getting put in the ambulance and I just every single little movement was agony. It was so dreadful. And I kept asking for water and they they were only giving me the tiniest bit. And apparently I was so my life was hanging by such a thread. I had no idea. As far as I was concerned, I was fine now. I was just in a lot of pain. But I mean, they they wouldn't give me more water. 
And it's because apparently it, more water might have killed me because I had so little blood left for a start, which I didn't know. I mean, and you'd been drowning at one and point. And I'd been drowning. I mean, so, but the pain was just, yeah. And then the next thing that happened was the blood bank, which is governmentally run, refused to release blood unless they were paid at U- in US dollars cash at three o'clock in the morning, if you don't mind, which is totally what? impossible. It's, a, it's impossible. So um, basically the woman who represented our health insurers, she went personally and she just screamed and shouted and performed and said, how dare you? You know bloody well we'll pay you in the morning. Um, and because, I mean, they are, they're known, they're a reputable, you know, high-end health insurance company. I didn't realise that's how emergency medicine could work anywhere in the world, though. I mean, regardless of whether the system is publicly funded or not, if someone's going to die unless you do it, you have to do it, don't you? You'd think so, wouldn't you? You would think so. So, I mean, it was really, really shocking. And anyway, because of my fitness, I survived for 10 hours with like one third of my blood volume left. So that's the ultra running. Were you allowed any visitors? Were you up to seeing any visitors? I was. And Sarah, who's my partner, she was my partner then, my wife now, she was allowed simply because the the surgeon just seemed to be a a very modern person because Zimbabwe is quite, quite backward in its views about some kinds of relationship and um oh, so she's not recognized as your wife not at all not at all no i mean we have to keep quite quiet and you know we don't put we don't even put it on facebook so right. you know it's yeah it's frowned on really in most places in africa other than south africa which is very progressive so it's really just down to a forward-thinking doctor that you it were was. able to have your partner by your side. Totally, because he just got it. We didn't really have to explain it. He just got it. And he just gave her carte blanche. He actually just told the matron and the hospital staff, this person is allowed here 24-7 if she wants to be. Um, give her complete access. And right? what was she thinking? You've obviously had an opportunity to ask her that since. I think for the first week, most people thought I was going to die because the the risk of infection from crocodile bites is massive and sepsis as you know is all over infection when it just gets into your bloodstream and i had 66 crocodile bites so to me it was a completely freak a freak occurrence crocodiles don't attack boats people don't survive crocodile attacks you know it was totally unheard of and impossible to survive but i survived it so the crocodile crushed my carpal tunnels. They completely squashed them. So they were totally blocked up. I mean, like there was no circulation at all. So they had to operate. They did a lot of operations, but they had to open up my carpal tunnels. So there's scar tissue from all of that. Plus there's there's plates in the right arm because one, one of the bones didn't heal properly. I had to put plates in in the end. I had external fixators for four months, so I was completely helpless for four months. I couldn't, I couldn't even go to the loo on my own. Um, and I, yeah, I couldn't bath. I couldn't, it was very, very hard, those four months. But the actual recovery to the point where I could start running again took about six months. So six months, that's amazing. I thought you were going to say four years. I know. I mean, it is so amazing. six months after this, you were running. I was. Did you tell Sarah the day you were going to do it? I told her when I got back. She was just <laughs> she was horrified, you know. So it was a challenge to yourself. It was. How did you prepare yourself for that? I, you know what? I just 
I just went and did it. I was out on that route and I thought to myself, because I could have avoided the crocs because there's two layers of fence between you and these crocs. And I, they, I could have run around the foliage on the other side and avoided them. And I actually just, it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. So I thought, no, I'm going to go look those crocs in the eye. So I went, I went to the fence and I stood by that fence and I just stared at all those crocodiles, like multiple. Some of them are right near the fence and you just look them in the eye. And you know what? It was fine because it was a completely controlled experience. So it was okay. It actually didn't free. I didn't even have a flashback or anything. It was a whole different experience because they were captive, you know. So I've made myself do that a few times. But I have to say that if something pops up on TV unexpectedly, it's not good. And could that be just flicking past a wildlife documentary or does it have to be an attack? No, anything, anything. Just, just glancing when it's not expected. You know, when I looked at those crocs behind fencing, I knew, I knew what I was going to see. But if it's, a, if it's out the blue, it's not so great. So, so, I mean, I'm getting there because I don't have nightmares. I don't, you know, I don't have flashbacks on the whole. I just need to avoid startle, startling things. Um, and I think that's got better too. I mean, this, this very exaggerated startle response, they call it. And it, for that first year, it was so, so out of control. And in the end, we just stopped putting on any series that had like sudden frights because a lot of detective type series, you know, you get taken by surprise and it would just trigger me into a bad place. So it's okay now though, but I'm, on the whole, I try to watch what I call life-affirming television <laughs> rather than things full of darkness and suffering you know well in general terms i mean throughout our conversation i think it's evident you're a very positive person you know i've asked you lots of questions about you know tell me about this difficult thing that happened and your answer to most of them is oh it wasn't that bad actually <laughs> um, which is kind of difficult to get your head around but i wonder therefore if you're a good person to ask what are the positives to an experience like that because you've obviously had to process them I have. I have had to process them. And, of course, it was a life-altering experience. And, of course, the most dreadful part was losing John. And, of course, I had this massive amount of survivor guilt and there was so much grief and I blamed myself because, you know, it was me that said, let's go canoeing now. All those things. I went through that for months. Well, probably the whole of the first year I was just beating myself. But what it makes you realise when... You face an impossible experience. You look at the odds and you say, there are zero odds I can live through this. I am going to die. And then you do live because you don't give up. Because I never gave up. Then you, you think to yourself, okay, never give up. Because you, you, know, you just might survive anyway. So it might be impossible, but you might survive anyway because I did. And can you apply that presence of mind to other situations in your life? You know, more mundane situations, but with work, for example, you know, if you're going through a difficult month and the money's not coming in, or if you're just irritated and you're standing in line for something and thinking, I'm never going to get out of here, do you try and draw on those experiences? I tend to, on the whole, not sweat the small stuff. I think that's the expression. I mean, sure, there are times when I do. Who doesn't? Sometimes you just get, get really annoyed by something really stupid and small. But on the whole, I tend to think, this really doesn't matter. Why am I getting so hit up? I might get initially hit up or irritated with a client who's being unreasonable. Say that's a good example for work. And then I might get hit up and think, oh, bloody unreasonable. And then I'll think, 
It really doesn't matter. Really, really doesn't matter. I'm alive. I'm alive. It doesn't matter. <laughs> because I often wake up in the morning and think, I'm alive. <laughs> because I'm still, I think I'm still surprised I'm still here sometimes. It sounds like in many ways, I hope this isn't an oversimplification, your main coping strategy for having this horrendous experience came out of running. You only found running because you'd been diagnosed with a brain tumour and it was as a result of basically Googling how do I cope with depression that you came to learn all those coping strategies. Is it too much of a stretch to say if this had happened to you 100 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to cope with it? I think you're right. I, I, honestly, I don't think it would have crossed my mind to take up running to, to combat really severe depression. I mean, it's not like I hadn't had depression before, because I had, but I, I was already using all the, the mechanisms I knew about, which was therapy, drugs, exercise, but I was walking. Um, so I went online looking for more because I just thought, no, there's got to be more. And you know what? Nobody likes taking pills. And I, I mean, look, antidepressants play their part and they're important. And I, I don't, I think lots of people need them and I will use them when I need to, if I have to, but I just wanted more. So I, I did a lot of Googling and this running just kept popping up here, there and everywhere. Try running for depression. So that's really how it started. It was just like, tried it took to it like a duck to water. And of course, after I got into the racing, then I started listening to podcasts. And then along came your podcast. <laughs> so that's kind of how we discovered Modern Man as well. It's like because of my running, really, and the running podcast I was listening to. So yeah. And then also listening to Brett Archibald, that interview you did with him. And it was, I've often thought about that that that's what I was listening to. This is the, the man who was lost at sea. Yeah. He fell off the boat. He fell off the boat. And we listened to your interview with him and we were absolutely enraptured. So we got the audio book and we were listening to it on that holiday in the Matobo. And the night before my, my near-death experience, I was listening to that, the audio book wow. of Brett Archibald. And I often have trouble falling asleep and I just put on that. And I was listening to all about his survival. That's crazy It was so peculiar. Yeah. Do you think that had an NLP-type benefit to you? I don't know. I mean, maybe subconsciously. Who knows? Because, I mean, he survived against absolutely all the odds, didn't he? He really did. Yeah. He's another person who really shouldn't be here, but he is. Rosie Mitchell. And if you've got a story you'd like to share on a future edition of the show, do what Rosie did. Reach out via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And who knows, you could be inspiring someone else in the future, just like Brett's story did for Rosie. Still to come, Alex Fox on Women's Wet Dreams. That's after this. In the future... Who will decide how our story is told? What swagger he had? What style? No, grim. 1770 was grim and it's better now. <laughs> Who will be there to record in uncomfortable detail the curious moments in history that should never be forgotten? Well, the fact that he had a painting depicting her with five breasts in his office that he occasionally threw darts at. I mean, that doesn't seem like yeah, the sort of weird. thing that you naturally do because you hate somebody. <laughs> now we have the answer. And their names will be celebrated in every country on every weekday, except some bank holidays. The speedboat was piloted by a Womble. Look at this and marvel, I murmured to Johnny Walker. You will never see anything like this again. 
They are Ollie, Rebecca, and Arian, otherwise known as the Retrospectors. Wherever you get your podcast. Okay, time to talk about the ins and outs of In and Out with Alex Fox. It's the foxhole. Hello, Alex. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, I have been speaking about the history of the rabbit vibrator because Anne Summer's famous trademark version, the rampant rabbit, turned 30 recently. Did it? Do you have the date in particular? Because that would be a great future episode of The Retrospectors. I need to write that down. <laughs> uh, I don't have it exactly. I think it was August 1991, but let me check that for you. The actual rabbit vibrator as a concept, though, has a much earlier origin. It came to be in Japan around 1983, where it was invented in order to circumvent the country's very strict obscenity laws that banned anything that was phallic. You couldn't have toys that looked directly I like penises. I had no idea. Yeah, that's why it has those characteristic bright colours that are very unrealistic and why those, uh, those cute critters are a key part of the rabbit. The rabbit actually originally had three kinky cousins as well. There was a beaver, a kangaroo and a turtle, a teenage Ooh. mutant ninja squirtle if you will and one company actually was so convinced that the beaver was going to be a big hit well it's got the pun yeah exactly so they plowed all of their money into uh, assuming that people were going to want to plow themselves with a beaver but then it was the rabbit that took off well it's the ears exactly it's obvious in retrospect exactly the ears tickle the clitoris but also people in other countries just found it so adorable and friendly and unintimidating Mm. compared to other sex toys of the time which frankly looked like sinister sausages. But also, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? With male sex toys, there's many more that are just holes you put your wang in um, than that are trying to look like, you know, bits of the body. And I think that's because I suppose it's sort of generally accepted that men don't have a problem disassociating, you know, masturbation from sex with a person. It doesn't have to represent anything. It's just a nice warm thing to put your thing in. With female sex toys then, was it more like they'd always been assumed that it sort of had to be something that looked and felt like a penis rather than just this is something I'm going to have fun with, this is something that feels nice, I'm a bit. Well, actually, I was chatting about this on the Radio 4 You and Yours programme recently. <laughs> Probably uh, with we... <laughs> less lurid detail, I'm guessing. <laughs> I had to be very careful about the <laughs> phraseology I used because it was before the watershed. But actually, toys for people with penises are following that same pathway nowadays. Um, you see toys from companies like Tenga and, and Handy and Womanizer have just launched a whole range of toys for, for people penile use that don't look like body parts because similarly they're recognizing that lots of people don't want something that looks like disembodied genitals they look they want something more modern and sculptural and that's less intimidating and speaking of which the handy have sponsored our listener question for this month you'll learn more about them at the end of the section it is from sarah who says the last six months or so every month around the time of my period I have a spontaneous orgasm in my sleep. I know it's real and not a dream because I wake up in the middle of it. What the hell? Alex, have you ever heard of this happening? Ooh, Mr. Glanman, bring me a dream. Make it so juicy that my pants will cream. Yes, I have heard of it, but now I know a lot more about it because I did a real deep delve into the science behind this. Mm. Um, First up, I think a lot of people aren't aware that women have wet dreams full stop. It's usually something we associate with with guys and particularly adolescent boys. Yeah, and the thinking is because basically you've got all this fluid building up that's going nowhere and that's not necessarily thought to be the same in the female anatomy. Yeah, the scientific name for it is a nocturnal emission. Yes. The experience is 
often less physically wet for women, although it can result in extra vaginal lubrication and orgasm, but it absolutely can still be just as intense. Um, Surprise, surprise, as we've covered umpteen times in the foxhole. There's not much research into it. (sighs) You hit the nail on the head. Because all scientists are men. Mm, Precisely. (laughs) There is a little bit about this in uh, Alfred Kinsey's famous research from uh, 1953. He found out that around 70% of women reported having sexual dreams at some point in their lives. Uh, And by around age 45, 37% of the females that he surveyed in his study group said that those sexual dreams had actually brought them to orgasm. So this is not uncommon. And anything about it being linked to periods? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, Anecdotally, a lot of women say that they not only have particularly vivid dreams around the time of their period, but they also tend to have more sexual dreams. It seems that when Aunt Flo visits, uh, she packs some kinky dreams in her suitcase. In men, wet dreams are often associated with increased production of testosterone. Mm. Uh, And there seems to be a hormonal link for women too. Yeah, because just after the period is when women are at the most fertile, right? That's the time that women often naturally are more interested in sex than at any other point in the cycle. Isn't that right? That's true, but women's most sexual dreams don't necessarily occur at the point at which they're most fertile. There are really two key elements at play here. Your hormones and your menstrual cycle affect your sleep. So at certain points um, in your menstrual cycle, you're likely to sleep differently and have more interrupted sleep. And secondly, your hormones and your menstrual cycle can affect how horny you are. Uh, And that plays out very differently for different women. But Mm. when those two things combine, it means that for, for a lot of women, you're much more likely to have sexy dreams just before you're on the blob. There's even a Reddit thread of people sharing their period dreams, a lot of which are extremely explicit. Are there any commonalities? There are actually. Uh, a physician called Dr. Christiane Northrup uh, found that her clients reported that just before they started their period, they regularly described dreams involving mud, bathrooms, and things being broken down. So, not traditionally sexy subjects. No. So, is there something hormonally going on inside Sarah? Okay, to be specific about the science, in the premenstrual part of a woman's menstrual cycle, the hormone progesterone tends to rise and that causes a drop in REM sleep. You might think that that would result in fewer dreams, but what it actually does is mean that sleep is more disturbed. So even though you're having less REM sleep, you are more likely to wake up during it and you're more likely to remember those dreams. So you're Mm. more likely to recall these sexual dreams that you're having. I was going to say, because sex is, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, not an infrequent part of general dreams. I mean, it might only last for a few seconds in the dream. Um, but <laughs> And in real life. <laughs> sometimes. Um, but it's uh, a thing that your brain turns to. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the big, like, drum roll main feature. Do you know what I mean? It can be a component part of just thinking about people, can't it, that sex comes into a story. That's a bit different. She seems to be describing something quite earth-shattering here, where she wakes up from the orgasm. Yeah, I mean, it might be that Sarah is actually experiencing um, less earthquaking orgasms during dreams at other points in her menstrual, mm. menstrual cycle, but during this premenstrual phase, because of the way her hormones affect her sleep, her increased core body temperature as well will interrupt that sleep. She's waking up at key moments 
which mean that these dreams are more likely to be recalled. The other side of this is that there's a lot else going on in the body at that point in the menstrual cycle. Your breasts can become more sensitive. So according to how she's laying in bed, she might actually be stimulating herself in other ways. Huh. As the body prepares to shed the uterine lining, the cervix actually drops down lower in the body. For some women, this feels uncomfy and unsexy. For others, again, there's heightened sense of sensuality and stimulation. And of course, women also take all sorts of medications and undergo procedures that alter their hormones too. I spoke to a variety of friends in my circle. Megan said that she had a huge increase in sexy dreams when she was pregnant. Uh, One of them, she says, she was dreaming of mixing together very sexy cookie dough. Uh, Another friend said when she first got her contraceptive implant, her dreams became a lot spicier when they usually weren't. Uh, And another mate, Joanne, uh, reported that having hormone replacement therapy, HRT, again gave her more vivid dreams it's interesting that isn't it because it's like with every other element of dreams people try and connect what does it mean i was walking down the street and i had a carrot instead of a nose whereas i think with sex dreams it doesn't really mean anything other than you're interested in sex does it like part of your thinking is sex and that's a natural thing i wonder whether it has to mean anything other than that I think it's a very dangerous pathway to try and overinterpret the real meaning of a sexy dream. And I think you can put yourself through quite a lot of psychological torture mm. if you interpret your dreams as, as definitely being reflective of, of something that you, you secretly wish for. I mean, I've had dreams about... Um, family members or weird celebrities I just would hazard against over analyzing the subconscious to that degree yeah well a lot of it comes from experience as well doesn't it and as we've talked about before a lot of people their most vivid kind of titillating experience it might not have even been a sexual one might have just been desiring someone come from when they were like 12 13 14 years old that's latently in the back of your brain it doesn't mean that's what you want to do now no not at all plus as we've just discussed there's a lot of different things at play here The sexy element might be coming from your hormones or the fact that your sleep is being disturbed, whereas the content might be coming from your mind sorting out through the events of the week or uh, the fact that you're preoccupied with uh, something you've got to do at the office. I'm not being, um, this is not a personal reference to me, I hasten to add. You do get very horny in the office though, I have heard that. Um, I love my job. (laughs) Uh, If you have a question of sex for Alex to answer in a future edition of The Fox Cell, she welcomes your correspondence. Send me your dreamy queries by toddling over to modernman.co.uk and hitting feedback. And we should thank our sponsors for the foxhole, The Handy. Uh, yes, it's a masturbation machine for penises that was designed in Oslo, but it can go all so fast if you want it to. It really can. I mean, I was talking about dreams being over quickly. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you want it done in three seconds, this thing has the power to do that. It is a surprisingly sturdy sex toy. I mean, you know, doing this show, you and I have... Uh, Shared various product samples over the years. Yeah, they're not all so rock solid yeah. when, they, when you apply them to your rock solid erection, are they? This is a proper, it, it plugs in the wall. So it goes very, very strong and very, very fast if that's yeah, what you up want. up to 10 strokes a second. It's the most powerful toy of its kind on the market. But crucially, actually, also as well, you know, if you're sensitive, if you're worried that you actually don't want to come really quick, it can go very, very slowly as well. So that's it's all very easy to control in that way. And it's really well built. I mean, it's not like some of the things, you know, that we've tried out, there have been things that you think, well, I can see that, that would work, but it would work for six months and then yeah. you would not want to keep using that thing. Yeah. A bit uh, flimsy on your quimsy. Yes, this is a solid piece of kit. 
but it also has cutting edge technology. For example, it can be remote controlled. So whether you're in Tottenham and your partner's in Timbuktu, you can share a sexual experience. Plus, it can even sync up with porn, some of which they've specially provided on a website. You can check out everything, though, the whole kit and caboodle on thehandy.com. And if you use the code FOXHOLE, then you get free express shipping. So we'll sort the postage and packing and you can get the handy direct on your package. Go to thehandy.com and use the offer code FOXHOLE. And thanks again to them. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Alex in Iceland who says, Ollie, I've been listening to your podcasts for years and I've waited too long to make a donation, but here is a round of beer on me. Thank you. Uh, it amazes me, he says, that your podcast has not suffered a drop in quality throughout the years and still feels so fresh. It has kept me going through dull jobs and dark winters. Keep up the good work and all the best to you and your team. Uh, Alex, flattery will get you noticed. Beer money seals the deal. You are now ambassador for Iceland. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a ambassador, then buy us a beer, drop us a line. All the details are on our website, monmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, until next time, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we will see you on June the 10th with How to Be a Dad, Part 7. Uh, now, please go and download the retrospectors. Thanks. Be good to me Treat me So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Roquefort became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the City of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.